listening to episode 57 of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. I'm Chris Lambert. And I'm Josh Havens. And we're on a journey to learn what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship. We're glad you're joining us and hope that as you set aside this time for God, that he would help you grow today in the everyday moments of life. Today, we're talking to Paul Borthwick. Paul serves on staff at Development Associates International, a training group dedicated to the character and ministry development of leaders in the under-resourced world. In 2015, he concluded a 30-year career teaching at Gordon College in the area of global Christianity. He's also served as a missions associate with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Paul's wisdom and experience in missions and teaching come through in his latest book, Mission 316, where he unpacks the Bible's most famous verse to unveil God's intentional, sacrificial mission for the world. Making disciples is one of the crucial components of a lifestyle of discipleship. We're called to reproduce disciples. And it's normal for Christians to think of spiritual disciplines and other practices as part of our own discipleship but we rarely think of making other disciples as part of that process as well. This is why Paul's latest book is so valuable. John 3.16 is one of those verses many of us could probably quote. We've heard it so many times it's almost cliche, and the depth of the meaning Jesus was communicating to Nicodemus in that chapter is sometimes lost on us. Really, it's an invitation to something more than just getting saved. It's an invitation to God's redemptive work in all of history. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be with you. So good to be talking with you today, talking to you about your book, Mission 360, God's One Verse Invitation to Love the World. Got to say, I loved this book. It is, I was a little bit surprised actually that such a missional book could be written about John 3.16. I mean, obviously, we, we know it, we've heard it, but when I think of a missional verse, I think of like things like uh, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, like Great Commission, you know, and, and other ones similar to that. So um, how did you come to write a book all about the mission of God through John 3.16? Well, partly as uh, over the years when I was a missions pastor and then before and after that, just uh, sometimes doing missions conferences, speaking. Um, to be truthful, maybe I just got tired of the same old texts. <laughs> and, uh, you know, missions enthusiasts like me say, well, missions in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, et cetera, et cetera. But it's obviously more conspicuous in the make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, or be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Acts 1 8. And so uh, one day in the study of John 316, um, yeah, I really realized that Jesus was calling us and Nicodemus beyond his own sphere of influence, uh, because it's, as it's pointed out in the in the book, uh, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, God so loved the world, it was basically a mind blowing thing to a Jewish uh, Pharisee, because he would have expected a fellow rabbi like Jesus to say. Uh, Nicodemus, God so loved the 12 tribes or the Hebrews or the Israelites. And and then, you know, you start looking at John 3.16, as Nicodemus would have heard it, right? And you go back to um, uh, Isaiah 49, verse 6, where God says to the people of Israel, it's too small for me to be concerned only for Israel. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say he's not concerned. It just says it's too small. 
and uh, I've made you a light of revelation to the Gentiles that all the ends of the earth might fear me. And so really, I think it, the phrase that obviously triggered it was the world. And then when I started looking into it, I found another great book on John 3.16 by uh, none other than Max Lucado. And Max has a lot of beautiful insights in this verse, right? Uh, in his book, I should say. But even Max, who served as a missionary in Brazil, if my memory serves correctly, uh, doesn't really expand on the world part of it. Mm. You know what I mean? And I just say, well, wait a second. I think, you know, and then you start looking at the whole basis of mission being God's pursuing lost people through us. And that's so how it started. And love being the motive and the world being the target and sacrifice at the foundation. All those things uh, became so the book is really a product of preaching the text in various capacities for probably 12 years before before I started writing it down. Yeah. And uh, in, in, uh, in the in the garden shop here and I live outside of Boston, uh, you can go, you know, if you have a piece of grass land that won't go grass, you can just go and get what I call it's, it's actually called meadow in a can. Hmm. Hmm. And it's it's a can full of all sorts of varied wildflowers. And as you know, wildflowers are weeds that grow and no one cares. And, uh, and you know, th- so I always refer to John 3.16 as God's mission in the can. Everything oh. you need, everything you need is, you're wondering how I was going to go with that metal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one, but, though. Uh, I like that. Yeah, you know, it's everything you want is in that verse, mm-hmm. you know, because... It does talk about uh, a love. It talks about future potential condemnation, too. You know yeah. what I mean? And eternal life, which is obviously life with God, not necessarily after death. So that's yeah. how we sort of unpacked it. And then uh, the way I often do a text or a book would be, you know, conceptually, you get an eight-point sermon that becomes eight folders, that becomes eight chapters, that becomes an eight-chapter book. It's actually a little bit more than eight chapters, but something along those lines. Yeah. So long answer to where it came from. No, that's that's a good one. And um, it, it does underscore why I so highly recommend that people check this book out, especially because we live in an age where, um, you know, Christendom is sort of, you know— it. it we're, we're more and more living in a post-Christendom era. Um, the church feels like it's it's always back on its heels. We feel afraid to go out and witness and evangelize in our own backyard, much less, um, you know, cross-culturally as, as you have done in, in, in your life and ministry. Um, it, but, but that's why I think this book is so important to really understand, and I'm going to start using this, right, the mission in the can, because yeah. it does. I think if you can get, if we can get our heads around this understanding of what John 3, 6, uh, John 3.16 is saying, as you present it, it does, it gives us a nice little roadmap to take away a lot of the fear and hesitation that we as Christians might have when it comes to approaching people, having spiritual conversations, and and then seeing where the Spirit might lead us in, you know, presenting the gospel to them. I, I want to ask you if you can maybe just talk about the methodology of your book, because, um, again, this is one of the things that surprised me the most about it, because you just take, like, a couple words at a time and just sort of break it down into each of these eight chapters like you're talking about. So like the first chapter where you really get into it is is for God and you start with for God. I normally wouldn't think that for God could be a chapter, but uh, you seem to unpack quite a bit of uh, profound insights from just those two words. <laughs> well, as uh, 
professors that I had at seminary said, you, you base, you're best to preach the Bible from the Bible. Mm-hmm. And when Jesus starts the sentence from, for God, and I'm, I confess, I don't know that in the Aramaic, for God was at the beginning, but because I'm writing to a people reading English, it works. Yeah. Um, the idea behind it I wanted to get across was the mission of God doesn't begin with us. It doesn't begin with Christianity versus Buddhism, Islam, or, or something else. It doesn't begin with global need. It doesn't begin. It begins with God. And the whole the whole mission of God is, uh, as somebody said, uh, uh, God doesn't have a church in the world with a mission. He has a mission in the world with a church. Mm. You know, and uh, God's mission is to reach lost people. And I take it way back to Genesis 3, 9. You know, God says to Adam and Eve, hey, enjoy yourselves. Just don't do this. And that's what they do. And they realize their nakedness. They hear God coming and they hide themselves. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to ask the question of, you know, how do they know that God's coming? All those kind of things. You can do that on another blog. Yes. (laughs) But uh, but, uh, the first words that we hear between human beings who are now rebellious and hiding from God is God saying, where are you? Mm. You know, and you fast forward to the New Testament, Jesus criticized for having lunch with the tax collector Zacchaeus. And he says, the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And uh, I taught one number of years at uh, Gordon College in the Boston area here, Christian College. And I taught the survey of world religions. And almost every other world religion is human beings trying to reach to God. Mm-hmm. Find God, say enough prayers, you know, go on enough pilgrimages, do enough sacrifices. In Christianity, God comes looking for us which is just it should blow anybody's mind matter of fact when i preach if i'm at a church inevitably there's some husband or wife that their christian wife or husband has dragged them to the surface (laughs) and uh and i'll say if you're listening to me right now and i'll say this to your blog listeners too if you're listening to me right now and you haven't said yes to jesus christ i'm here to tell you that as you're listening god's saying where are you God, you know, it's like uh, that song, I Want You Back. It's like God is basically saying, um, I want you back. I want you back in a relationship. You know, and I think sometimes Christians, we get afraid because we just don't go out into the world saying, where are you? We go out and saying, this is where you need to be. Mm, Yeah. And where are you starts with where the person's at, you know. Uh, An interesting story that... uh, you might find it interesting. I don't know. Boston, as you may or may not know, is not exactly uh, the center of world Christianity. Mm-hmm. How's that for an yeah. understatement? Yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've heard that before. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and you know, I've I've always I've lived here all my life, so the the suspicions and uh, you know uh, ridiculousness of what an evangelical looks like to people. I'm I'm accustomed to it. I'm kind of you know hardened to it, and I like to play with it. And so I, before COVID, at least, I was traveling a lot. And, um, you know, inevitably, you get into a chat with the, the guy or the woman next to you, and, and inevitably, it leads to, so what do you do, you know? And uh, I would always say, well, I'm a leadership development consultant. I do international leadership training. And sort of a neutral answer to try to not lose the conversation. 
But lately, what I've done is uh, they'll say, so what do you do? And I'll say, well, actually, truth be told, I'm an evangelical pastor. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then immediately, immediately I follow up with, now that I've said that, what do you think I believe? How do people right. respond to that? Well, it ranges. I, I met a professor from Harvard. He was sitting next to I got upgraded on some flight, and I was sitting next to him. And, and he, he basically looked at me like he was, you know, discovering Cro-Magnon Man. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, really? He says, you know, it was almost like, you're pretty intelligent for uh, evangelical. <laughs> well, because of all the images in the news yeah, media yep, and everything. Yep, yep. You know, and some guys, and one guy said to me, you know, referencing um, so sad evangelical linkage with guns, mm -hmm. right, NRA. And he says, uh, are you packing heat? <laughs> and, and I said to him, uh, I said to him, no, of course I'm not packing heat. I said, it's in the overhead bin. Right? <laughs> and he kind of laughed. And thankfully, he wasn't, he wasn't the marshal on board. Yeah. I might have been. I thought of that afterwards. I said, you know, that was kind of a weird joke. But, uh, you know, sometimes people just say, oh, that's interesting. Or they'll want to talk politics. And, and we need to be comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, um, Billy Graham, Franklin's father, said the worst mistake of his life was too closely aligning himself with Richard Nixon. Mm, because yeah. when Richard Nixon became known to be corrupt, it discredited the gospel. Yeah. And that's I'm, a good point. I'm a person that will say the close alignment of white evangelicals with any president, Democrat or Republican, it, it whatever they do becomes equal to the gospel. Yeah. You know? And therefore, we get discredited. I mean, I've people won't listen to me because of that. But then yeah. again, you know, people have asked me, I, I said to, you know, I'll tell them, I said, I'm not one of those, you know, blow up the abortion clinic type guys. I said, I'm pro-life. I'll tell them that. But I'm pro-immigrant life. I'm pro-life after they come into the world. I'm pro-help. I'm, I'm not just pro-birth. Yeah. And, you know, just basically, I'm not... I'm not saying it's exceptionally clever, but I think as evangelicals or as Bible-believing Christians, whatever label you want to put on yourself, I think we really need to uh, to to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you and, bring up some really good points. Uh, we, in fact, we, a couple of weeks ago we had talked about this very thing about aligning ourselves too closely, especially with politics and everything, because inevitably, number one, they're they're not where our hope is. They're of a different kingdom, and they're going to let us down. And if we've aligned ourselves, then we mar our witness. And so I think that's a it, it, that's a great point. But I also think that might be a huge source of our fear when we go to maybe reach out to somebody and begin these, these conversations. Like, you've just demonstrated some really great ways of maybe – uh, diffusing the tension, you know, I think humor could be a, a really great one. Um, but, but I'm curious, were, have you always been like this, uh, like very fearless in the face of talking to strangers on planes or, or did you have to develop this in your life? Totally developed, totally developed. Um, instinctively, if you took me through the Myers-Briggs test, I would actually test as an introvert. Mm. Uh, but the church that I started working at as a youth pastor, when I started working there, um, you know, the church was 250 people on an average Sunday. 
We got a new pastor who was very dynamic, and over the course of the next 10 years, the church became up to almost 3,000, hmm. wow. right? And so when you're in a ministry like that, you either, you know, so I would refer to myself as a learned extrovert. But when I'm on the airplane, I, you know, I, I was trained with crew, right? Campus Crusade, as it yeah. used to be called, but crew. And crew always talks about divine appointments. You know, that guy next to you on the bus, that person you're in the unemployment line with, whatever it is, that's your divine appointment. So I've lived with that mentality. But in the old days, when their speakers would come to campus, they would talk about their divine appointments. And they say, as I was flying in today, I started witnessing to row six and and 12 people became Christians. We planted a church down in row 27. And, you know, and, and, and the fight was like 25 minutes long. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. Whereas I've flown from Chicago to Hong Kong, which is one of the longest flights you could do. And the guy next to me never even introduced himself. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I mean, but I think it's a, it has to do with being creative. I think the biggest thing that uh, has helped me and and is is the idea of i need to know where these people are before i can say anything that might be relative relevant to them yeah you know what i mean yeah that's a good point i mean because um it's actually out of the seven habits of highly effective people which is actually by a mormon but we won't go there anyhow uh one of the seven habits is we need to understand so that we can be understood And if I don't understand what this guy thinks of when I say I'm an evangelical, then he won't understand anything I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, years ago, James Engel of Wheaton and then the Eastern University created what's called the Engel Scale. Mm -hmm. And his argument was that most evangelistic techniques were designed on a presupposition that the people were, if zero is the decision point line, that people were negative one or negative two. And but he did the thing all the way down to negative eight, which negative eight is no awareness of God. Right. Yeah. Number seven is something else. And we need to find out where people are at on that scale. You can find it online if they go E-N-G-E-L scale. And and uh, because it helps you know where to start, Mm -hmm. you know, ask ask a provocative question. I mean, you know, in the old days of evangelical, evangelistic uh, technology, or, or what is it called, training, we would say, you know, ask somebody, if you were to die today, do you know where you'd go? Right? Yeah. And they would say, yeah, um, the grave. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, and, yep. and now, now I say, if you were go to, uh, if you were going to, uh, you know, go get in, get into a conversation with God, he said, why should I let you into my heaven? Have you ever thought about what you would say? No. Have you ever thought about where you're going to go and die? No. I mean, and I'm not thinking these people are be resistant. I think they never think about it. Yeah. They yeah. just have no conception of the, the afterlife is actually a thing that we need to consider. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, or as Woody Allen says, people say, I'll live on in their memories. He says, I want to live on in my apartment. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he, because uh, he has, uh, what's it called, necrophobia, fear, fear of death. It's, yeah, yeah. You know, but one of the things that's really helped me, and I'll say this, my wife has worked 40 years at a microbiology laboratory, right? Mm-hmm. And I was usually on a church staff or working for a Christian organization. And she would come on to me, she says, Paul, you have no idea what it's like to talk with people who never think about God. Mm-hmm. He says, all the people you're talking to 
are thinking about God, going towards him or going away from him, but they're all thinking about God, you know. And I think that's been a huge help, you know, because to use one of the messages out of the book, people will respond to demonstrated love even before they respond to a spoken word of love. Mm-hmm. And uh, my wife was, was in the same microbiology lab for 40 years, meaning the same hospital with the, some of the same people. And uh, as time went on, we got invited to fewer and fewer parties because I think my, they knew I was a minister. And so uh, they, uh, they felt guilty when they were doing things that their Roman Catholic or Protestant heritage told them were wrong. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, you know, the, the, uh, that little, you know, angel, you know, pointing the mm-hmm. finger at them. Yeah. Uh, but Christy became the pastor of the lab. And whenever people had a question or a challenge or a rebellious kid or, I mean, and, and one of the ladies, she was in a lesbian marriage, right? And her partner was dying of cancer. Mm-hmm. And she came to Christy for prayer. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, and I said to Christy, what did you say? She goes, well, I prayed for her. Yeah, you know, wow. I mean, because the lady's expecting condemnation. Uh-huh. You know, it's God's judgment on you because, of, you know, and Christy was like, hey, she's losing somebody she loves very much. I don't necessarily agree with the status they're at, but that's not my problem right this second. I think sometimes Christians, we want people to be converted before they get converted. Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) You know what I mean? It is. like we used to say this in youth ministry, like, what do you get when a nerd becomes a Christian? (laughs) A a Christian nerd. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) And, uh, yeah. So anyhow, that's just being creative or not necessarily that, but being... You know, just taking on the opportunity to talk, uh, because a lot of people. Sorry, a lot of people presume that the answer is going to be negative. Mm -hmm. The best conversation I had was when I identified myself as an evangelical pastor. We went back and forth, and I told them some of the funny stories of responses I had gotten. And the guy who was of Jewish ethnicity but not practice, if I could say it that way, you know, no Mm -hmm. no faith per se. He says to me, "Well, now that you mention it." I've heard the word evangelical, but what does the word evangelical even mean? Hello. You know, so I led him to Christ. We planted a church on Road 27. No, that's not. <laughs> All through the definition of evangelical. <laughs> that's right. No, I had a chance to explain it to him, and he had never heard much of anything like it. And I, I choose my words, you know, uh, what is the word for it? I try to choose words that might be hooks, you mm-hmm. know, like... Uh, like forgiveness or reconciliation or, you know, basically, um, what do you do with your fears? You know, I mean, right now, one of the things we've talked about is, um, you know, people with the fear of COVID mm-hmm. a lot. I'm 66 and my wife's 67. So a lot of people our age and older, you know, they, they realize, uh, that they're the, we're the ones that are in the, what's it called? The susceptibility group. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, Go I ahead, think you back, had a question. Yeah, I think back uh, a couple months ago, we had some great conversations, one with uh, Don Everts uh, about uh, why we're reluctant witnesses, and another one with a guy uh, named Russell Verhey, uh, who wrote a book called The Conversationalist. Mm. And what stood out to me in both of those conversations was really 
the the best way to start talking to people is to meet them where they're at. We think we have to have these uh, high, deep theological conversations to get them to that point of decision right away before we can even talk about the rest of the, the Christian experience. And really, it's about meeting them where they're at, asking them what's going on in their life, showing a genuine interest, the love that we're talking about here. And, and it's in that place where we see the opportunity to bring Christ into the middle of their situation, whatever it is. Yeah. And I think so many times uh, we're afraid of these conversations because we we feel like, yeah, time is short. We have to get them saved right now because if they if they walk away from this conversation and they die, their blood's on our hands. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and we miss, like you're talking <laughs> about the Ingalls scale here, really that God could be at work in their entire lives moving them through one level to the next to the next. And you could be the one who's watering a seed that was planted 20 years ago. And you may not be the one to see it harvested five years from now. Right. And so, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, no. Several years ago, I uh, ruptured a disc in my back and uh, it was very painful. And I spent a lot of time flat on my back on the floor. It was Labor Day weekend. My wife was working on Labor Day. And uh, so I laid down in front of the TV and watched 11 straight hours of Law and Order. <laughs> All right. Wow. And that that series of shows actually transformed my concept of being a witness. Hmm. Right. Because God is the one building the case in that guy's life or that woman's life that I'm sitting next to on the airplane or on the bus or you know, today uh, we had a plumber in, ta- in our house and uh, covered with tattoos. That was my conversation piece, you know. And he had he had uh, he had faith on his leg. He had a cross. He had his daughter's name, and and he had a hand grenade in one place, you know. So anyhow, I don't know what that one was, but I actually started with the grenade, and I asked him if he was a vet, right? Mm-hmm. And then I said, well, what's the cross then? Well, you know, he's a pretty devout Catholic, goes to Mass every week. I said, oh, what's the faith? Well, that's, you know, the way I deal with life, you know, is have faith in God or something like that. And so the point is, God is building the case in that guy's life. And I'm being called in as a witness. I may or may not, as you mentioned, be the conclusive case, the conclusive witness, or the one that turns the verdict. But I just need to be obedient to being a witness, you know, and the reminder that God's the one doing the pursuing. He's going ahead of us. He's going with us. He goes behind us to you say, sort of paraphrase uh, Francis of Assisi prayer. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and he's prepared that guy before he got to you. And uh, yeah, so one more story. We're, we're staying in the wintertime months down in Florida. And there's a guy we learned sort of by happenstance, he was educated at a Christian college and somewhere along the lines in his 20s walked away from it, probably a divorce and the way the church responded to his divorce. That's that's our guess. Well, he's now 72 years old and he just had to have a heart surgery. And I asked him, I said, because we've been very cautious not to be pushy, because I understand that can be a real turnoff to people. And so I called him up. His name is Arnie. I said, Arnie, um. Would, would it be okay if I told you I were going to pray for you? Oh, please pray for me. Please pray for me. You know, because when, you know, I mean, I don't know whether he 
I don't know whether he was, you know, going to wonder who I was praying to and for what, but he just, he values that care. And I hit him at a moment when, you know, knowing where, and I, maybe I'm one of the witnesses God's calling into his life to bring him back. Who knows? Yeah. Now, that's a great point. And uh, I think, again, when it comes to this idea of fear, which I, I think is so prevalent in, in, in our minds, if we can kind of get the right mindset and, and this is what we've been talking about for the last like 20 minutes here. I think that will really go a long way in helping us as Christians be more willing to step out. Um, one of the other things, though, that I think is important to this end, and this is kind of the theme, if you can't tell, which I'm I'm really passionate about. And, and it's because it's a, it's a struggle with me as well. Like, I'm, I'm very passionate about sharing my faith. I want to see people come to know the Lord. I want to disciple them. Um, but there's always that fear that stands in the way. Um, so one of the other things that I, that I find from people, in fact, I had a, I was on a, I was kind of on staff at a church plant. So like, take that for what it is, because it's a church plant. We don't really have a staff, but you know, you're, you're kind of like the core group of, of people. And one of the members on here, he literally said, well, the reason I don't uh, share my faith more is because I'll be honest, I don't understand the gospel enough. I just don't, I just don't know it. And so I think that that plays a huge factor into this as well as not knowing about the message for which we we say we profess and we adhere to and follow Christ. Um, so I, I was wondering if you could, could you talk about this in, in the book as well? Um, what are we, I, but I like this idea. In fact, I was watching the, uh, uh, the American gospel on Netflix and we're gonna have to do a podcast on that. That'll be a whole different conversation. Um, but at one point they started talking about this and I turned to my wife and I said, see, exactly. I say this all the time. If you're preaching a gospel and you can't answer my, I have two questions. What are you saved from? And what are you saved for? Like, if you can't answer those questions, I, I have serious doubts the gospel had been preached in a, in a clear me- uh, method. Um, how, how do you respond to those questions? What are we saved from? What is, what is salvation that we're preaching here? Mm. Well, you know, if you go back to the classical traditions that we might have come from, we're saved from hell, condemnation, etc. And that's in John three seventeen, actually. And John three thirty six, you know, but um, I believe first and foremost we're saved from the great. We're saved from missing the greatest possible life that God could design for us. You know, we're, we're missing the the thing that will help us conquer our fears. We're missing the very thing that gives us freedom to forgive and be forgiven. You know. Um, if, if if it's fully integrated, which it never never is, but uh, you know when we are growing and being more and more into the fullness of Christ, as that phrase in the Bible says, then that's that's what we're being saved. We're being saved from a life of emptiness. We're being saved from a life of you know feeling useless or whatever. Uh, we're being and we're being saved from loneliness. You know, I mean. Every time God says in the Bible, fear not, a number of the times, the next phrase is, I am with you. Mm-hmm. I am with you. So we're being saved from that kind of loneliness. We're being saved from an emptiness. We're being saved from a, um, you know, a, a life of drivel. You know, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. Um, when the Red Sox, since we were in Boston, I should say this. <laughs> In the Reds, when the Red Sox like uh, won the won the, uh, the World Series in 2004, 
Actually, what's more important is they beat the Yankees, but that's another story yeah. <laughs> for a different time. And um, there were old guys on TV who had been season ticket holders for like 50 years, and they were like Simeon when he saw baby Jesus. You know, it's like now your servant can depart in peace. I mean, this is what they had been living for. And I love watching sports. Don't get me wrong. But if you're living for the Red Sox, that's yeah. a pathetic. Then you find out they cheated. It's like, <laughs> wait a second. That's what Bill Belichick does. Anyhow, but that's a different story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, the point is that there's a thousand different distractions that keep us from what really matters. Mm-hmm. And I think I think we're being saved. If I, to phrase, use a phrase out of Ecclesiastes, we're being saved from emptiness. Mm, yeah. You know, and the, the feeling like, what was that about? You know, it's there was a British uh, politician who at the end of his life talked about, you know, how many thousands and thousands of words he had written as briefs. And then he realized at the very near end of his life, he said, I began to wonder what, what was any of it worth? Mm-hmm. You know, so I think we're being saved from emptiness. We're being saved to meaning. We're being saved to purpose. We're being saved to eternal life which is not something that begins when you physically die. John 17, verse 3 says this, Jesus is speaking, he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Yep. And, you know, walking through that, the, the journey, um, you know, and sometimes it helps to realize what we're saved to if you're saved from something more dire. Mm-hmm. All right. When I was a youth pastor, kids, we'd have these people in, you know, like I was a drug addict. I was shooting heroin, you know, this kind of thing. And they got dramatically saved. And then the church kids would say, well, what about me? You know, mm-hmm. and some of some of them, I was tempted to say, yeah, why did you go sin for a little while and, so you can get <laughs> saved? Well, because well, because when we when we grow up with it, it's easy to take for granted. Yeah. You know what I mean? But um, but that's why. I, I believe one of the things we we should do in in the process of discipleship is always always be hanging out with people who are either asking the new questions or just new to their faith. Mm-hmm. Because even if you haven't been down Hell's Road, listening to their story helps your you sort of, if I could say it this way, get converted in your mind again. Yeah, you know because you hear what the life is without Jesus. Mm-hmm. And you realize, wow, now that you say it, I don't think I've ever, you know, you know how they, they'll say, you know how sometimes you think that I just should shoot myself in the head? Well, no, actually, <laughs> yeah. I, I never did have it. But I mean, the point being that uh, being saved to, being saved from, both of those things are just inc- integrally important with not eternity as much as the day-to-day. Yeah, you know, yeah, no, it's a good point. Because yeah. we take it for granted. We think we think yeah. our Christian life is about someday off in the future, and eventually, if we die, and you know, it's it's the uh, it's fire insurance and it's the ticket to heaven sort of yeah. uh, mentality that we're trying to really. I mean, those things are great. Like we we want to avoid hell. We want to go to heaven or whatever that is, and that again, resurrection really. Yeah. I'm kind of an 
N.T. Wright's camp. Uh, heaven's not the ultimate destination. It's it's Earth. And so, um, but but you raise a good point. Salvation means that we get to begin our eternal life with Christ today, no. right now. And I think, I think, man, now that is good news. Once we mm-hmm. kind of you know get our heads around it. And I, mm-hmm. I love your point too, because I was one of those kids, by the way, of. Uh, you know, one of the church kids that did have a testimony. So I'm sitting here and, you know, everybody's getting saved around you. But what what I did find, and I was in part of a very vibrant youth group that was exploding, and it was because of exactly um, what you said. This this was my observation, is because all of these people were coming in that, that had not been in the church and were getting saved, their passion for the gospel was rubbing off on us. Yes. You can't help but get passionate and want to see more of what God is doing when other when God is working in people's lives. Yeah. And so you, you want to go out. And so we did. I mean, every again, how many teenagers? Out, I mean, we had like a youth group of like 300. And so there would be like 100 or so of us. We'd go to the mall every Friday and we were out there asking people those questions. I'm not necessarily yeah. proud of the, the way we went about it. We need we need a little bit more wisdom now, but you know, it was, you know, if you died today, where would you go? You know, it was a lot of that sort of stuff that we would do. And um, uh, we saw God do some really great things through it, of course, but... Um, it, well, and even that has to do, even your mall experience has to do with cultural context, mm-hmm. you know, because uh, years ago I went to the Willow Creek Evangelism Conference, right? And I love the stories of transformation they would tell, right? Um, but I leaned over to one of my n- native New England colleagues and I said, I think Willow Creek's non-Christians are less non-Christian than my non-Christians. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And what, yeah, I meant by yeah. that, what I meant by that is seeing a nominal Lutheran come to personal faith is not quite the same as seeing a Wiccan in mm-hmm. Salem, you know, put her trust in Jesus. Yeah. You know what a Wiccan is? The, yeah. You know, witches. Yeah. Witches, the, yeah. The, well, they're not really witches. They're good witches, which I think is an oxymoron, but anyhow. But, I mean, that's that's the world that I live in. Mm-hmm. So on my scale, you know, to to lead neg- negative ones, the question is that the mall might work. Yeah, yeah. You know, to, to, but to, to get to the... Uh, Negative eight. I just had a family member tell me over Thanksgiving. I thought you should know I became a witch. Hmm. Oh, pass the gravy, please. Yeah. I mean, you know, it <laughs> was, and, and I know that this person brought it up just to see how I'd respond. Yeah. You know and what the, I mean? Yeah, and it's see, and that's where that's where we get so uncomfortable with because again, we feel like we've got to deal with that problem right then and there. I remember a story when I was in the when I was in the youth group. Speaking of. Wiccan. I told Josh this story just the other day um, uh, oh, yeah. of a student. He was, uh, I'm, I'm from Memphis, so that's, that's just where the story takes place. And so he was um, a white guy in a inner city, predominantly African-American school. And he, and he was a big guy, but he was, he was terrified. He was scared for his life um, every day, he said. And so, and it was, I mean, it was a rough school. Again, like we had schools where you know, um, like sixth graders were getting uh, beat into gangs and stuff like that in the bathrooms. And I mean, just all kinds of stuff that, w- that would take place. And so um, one of his friends had brought him that was going to our little, our cell group is what we called it. And um, so we, we were talking afterwards and he showed me, he had he had uh, Wiccan runes written on his knuckles. And, and they were, you know, he practiced white magic 
because that was his protection. And so the guy who had been coming and he had recently gotten saved, he turns to me and says, yeah, but since Jesus is the true God, if he cast his white magic spells through Jesus, would they be super powerful spells instead? (laughs) And it's like... Oh man. Okay. Well, yeah. wait a second. We gotta we gotta back up. We gotta do some world Need to building. Have another here. conversation. <laughs> like, yeah. And you feel like you feel like you have to deal with that entire issue right then and there. And you know, oh no, you know. And, and I think the reality is, is you're not going to be able to. Right. We're not going to be able to change everything about somebody's thinking um, in in a single conversation. And we have to be okay with that because I like I like your law and order illustration. God is yeah. really the one that is putting this case together. Right. And and we need to look for opportunities where we might can be witnesses on his behalf and, uh, you know, strive and endeavor to that end. Right. And and there are some times when I, you know, I believe I've been subpoenaed and I didn't show up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, you yeah. know, I mean, it's, um, but, you know, that's the grace of God. I mean, to, to realize that, it's a team effort of me, the body of Christ, and the Godhead to yeah. lead someone to Jesus. And actually, I'm the only I can do appointing. I don't know. I don't. I don't have the capacity to see somebody transformed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that you brought up a good point though of why people sometimes don't witness too, is they're afraid they're going to be asked a question they don't know the answer to. And let yeah. me just say, any to any of you listeners, you will be asked a question you don't know the answer to. Period. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, because if you get people asking deep questions, hey, guess what? They might ask like deep questions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, and uh, you know everything from uh, is COVID nineteen, you know, a curse from God. You know, is Donald Trump the pale rider in the Book of Revelation? You know, and mm-hmm. I mean, it's just ridiculous stuff. The orange rider. But, Oh, sorry. Sorry. I'd expect that coming from a Bostonian. Not, uh, not... It's too. It's too. It's too easy. Yeah. Wow. Sorry. But no. But the uh, the idea. You know. I mean. Mm-hmm. And why does God allow suffering and evil in the world? I don't know. Yeah. I can tell you some of the potential outcomes of how it refines you and revelation. You know, Romans chapter five and makes you persevere and all this kind of. Sh- but I don't know, you yeah. know, I mean, and uh, and then, you know, you get there's there's a, a book by a rabbi whose da- child died of a tragic disease. And the book was called Why Big Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, Rabbi Kushner. Well, his conclusion was God doesn't want it to happen, but he's powerless to stop it. Hmm. Well, that's that's a more hopeless answer. Yeah. Then there's no God. <laughs> You know, um, but I'd like to write a book on why good things happen to bad people. Exactly. Yeah, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, perhaps our worldview is wrong. (laughs) Yeah. And it's it's a wonder that anything good can happen. Right. But that's why I think we have to. And that's why even in the book on the John 316 book, Mission 316, I talk about sacrifice. And because... um, Quoting from uh, John Stott in one of his books, he says, The world is saying to Christians what Thomas said to Jesus, show us your scars and then we'll believe. Mm. And what he means by that is they're watching the way that we suffer through COVID. They're watching the way that we suffer with cancer. They're watching. I mean, I had a friend of mine who was a 
long lifetime Pentecostal. I mean, you know, he'd, he'd had faith healing meetings. He would bring in some of the major names, you know, and 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 um, and they would come to Boston, and you know, people would be in smitten and going down and everything like that. And um, and in his sixties, he contracted mouth cancer, right? And he was in the hospital, and you know, all over the world. I'm not making this up. People were praying for his healing, miraculous healing, restoration to full health, you know. And I went, I talked to him then, and I said, his name is Ernie. I said, Ernie, um, do you think God's going to heal you? He says, I don't know, Paul. He says, I think God has me on this floor for these people. Hmm. Yeah. He says, because I have the cancer that they have, they will listen to me. And, you know, at his funeral, I think there were five people there that he had led to Christ on his floor before he died. Wow. Wow. You know, but the point being, it's not, it's uh, in another book, I have a little chapter called Evangelistic Suffering, mm-hmm. you know, and that uh, basically that God will use even our worst suffering, mm-hmm. you know, so it's just, uh, but it has to do with the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and gave is, is more than just let him come. It's, it's come and die. Yeah. You know, f- fulfill your purpose pay the penalty for the sins of the people I'm sending you to mm-hmm. that PS, the PS we created, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yep. And, uh, and that kind of sacrifice is, uh, you know, that's what reminds us of the fact that, you know, we might not have the answers, but we can certainly listen to the questions. Yeah. And we know? can use them as an opportunity to invite further, uh, relationship. Yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. Let's uh, meet again next week for coffee or something. You know, yeah. like those answers can be viable. Uh, and if you're like me, like I have to kind of have that in the chamber ready to go. Otherwise, I'm not yeah. going to think of it on the spot. And so, because um, it seems so simple now, but like when you're in that situation, um, but the, yeah, those opportunities are all around us if we're just willing yeah. to uh, to take advantage yeah. of them. Yeah, and and I mean, in, in Jeremiah 29. He says to the people of Israel, you know, they're in they're in um, uh, exile, and we love to quote verse eleven mm-hmm. out of context. I might add, um, because that's that's a promise for two generations later. But he says, "Listen, live in the city, get married there, raise your family there, and be a blessing to the city." Yeah, and I think we should be thinking about being blessings to our communities, even the ones that don't convert. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know what I mean? It's uh, uh, and so that's that's all to say that's where John three sixteen you know plays out in my my life and uh, and and then trying to you know trying to I guess you could say trying to be good and do good, mm. but uh, trying to trying to be a, a a picture of Jesus to the people around us. Yeah, well said, well said. Um, I, real quick, I don't want to be sensitive to your time, but um, for. I want a bonus from you. So for those who are listening, we actually tried to record this previously and the recording got messed up. And so anyway, in that last recording, though, we had talked a little bit about your dissertation and the work that you had done on that is specifically for um, where lots of our problems come from uh, related to our identity. So identity is something very near and dear to our heart. And I wonder if you might could give us just a quick little synopsis of your insights into how important our identity is uh, for the way we live our lives. Well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for remembering that question because um, 
It has to do with issues of racism. It has to do with ethnocentrism, which is my people are better than your people. You know, nationalism, which is basically make America great again and nobody else. You know, I mean, that kind of that kind of attitude. And I am. The reason why it comes naturally to us to find our identity at the expense of somebody else is because when sin entered the world, our relationship with God was broken. And the very sense of our identity in God's character gets lost. So Adam and Eve hide. They realize they're naked. And as soon as God says, where are you? He asked about the, the you know, eating. Did you eat this from this tree? And they said, you know, Adam blames the woman, the woman blames the snake. And all of a sudden, we are launched into this identity response to insecurity by putting somebody else down. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in my coursework, I call it oppositional identity. My identity at your expense. Mm-hmm. You know, Luke 18, the Pharisee. I thank you, God, I'm not like this slob over here. You know, and... Um, you know, and, and one of the jokes was that the president of the company abuses the vice president. You know, he, the vice president puts down the middle, the, the high level manager, the high level manager puts down the middle manager, the middle manager puts down the line worker. The line worker goes home and abuses his wife. The wife abuses the children and the children kick the dog. Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea is all of us tend to find our identity instinctively by feeling better about some about ourselves than somebody else, you know. I thank you, God. And I, in my classes, I always ask people to fill in the blank. Who do you pray? I thank you, God. I'm not like this person. You know, yeah. is it? I thank you, God. I'm not black. I thank you, God. I'm not white. I thank you, God. I'm not Democrat or Republican. I thank you, God. I'm not a Yankees fan. I mean, it could be small things. It could be big things. But it's, it's identity at the expense of someone else. And the solution, I believe, is that we would find our identity back in Christ so that like Paul the Apostle we can say by the grace of God I am that I am or I am what I am you know we're, we're imitating see God says I am who I am because he has a he has his identity within himself but we have derived identities mm-hmm. you know I am Gene and Harry's son I am Christie's husband I am you know graduate of this or that and so we need to say, okay, who am I? And the answer is, I'm, I am his, I'm God's, I'm Jesus, you know? And so the, the bottom line application is I want, always want to ask myself and anybody who wants to listen, who are you first? So I'm first a Christian who happens to be an American citizen. So anything about my American culture has to be filtered through my Christian grid, right? Mm-hmm. My, my approach to the Second Amendment, you just, just refer to having something in your chamber, so I knew that you mm-hmm. know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yep. You know, my approach to that has to be shaped by my biblical beliefs, my approach to multiculturals, my approach to people who are from other world religions. All that has to be shaped not by what politicians or the government or anybody else tells me. My approach towards immigration, it all has to be built on my fact that I am first and foremost a Jesus follower. Whereas if I'm an American who happens to be a Christian, then my Christian values can get uh, become subservient 
to my American lifestyle, my American culture, mm-hmm. you know, and that's and I'm not just picking on us as Americans. This is true around the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, because a lot of the classes, I, I taught a class recently in India. I had 18 students and 15 ethnic groups represented by those students. Wow. And each of them has within itself the desire to my ethnic groups better than your ethnic group, which is what produces things like the Rwandan genocide, 1984, yeah. 1994, I should say. Yeah. And the point being, who are you first? You know, because my first family is my Christian family. Mm-hmm. You know, Ephesians 2 says that Jesus came to make us into a new household, breaking down the dividing walls. Several years ago, I had a chance to go do some teaching, peacemaking building, peace building amongst pastors who are from different ethnic groups in Kenya. We went to Kibera, which is the biggest slum in Africa, some people would say, and very dangerous. And during the 2008 Kenyan elections, many people died there of inter-ethnic tensions. And we were trying to get the pastors, all from different ethnic groups, to be working together to build peace in their community, no matter who gets elected, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I would tell my American friends, I'm going on this trip. They, where are you going? I'm, hey, oh yeah, you've been there before. Yeah, yeah. But this is the first time I'll be in Kibera. Is that the big slum where all the people died? I said, yeah. This, isn't it dangerous there? And I said, well, yeah, but I'm going because I have family there. Mm-hmm. And they said, really? I think they thought I might have a cousin who was a missionary or somebody who was a Bible translator or something like that. They, Your family? Yeah. Who? And I said, oh, I haven't met them yet. <laughs> I haven't met them yet, but in Christ, they're my family. Yeah. You know, and my family is wearing blue policemen's uniforms and my family is walking with Black Lives Matter. And, you know, one of the hardest things about being a Christian is extending grace to fellow Christians. Yes. Yes. You know, but all that's to say, we need to be secure in who we are in Christ mm-hmm. so that we can, in a sense, graciously tolerate each other. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well said. Well, beca- because, well, remember what it says? It says the world will know that you're my disciples. Mm-hmm. Not by the love you have for the world, but by the love you have for each other. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, so I appreciate the question very much. And it's something, it's a long term process of really, you know, because I, I still, I, I was, I appreciate your fact you're from Memphis. And one of my colleagues from South Carolina said to me one time, he says, How come you're sensitive to every other culture of the world except Southern culture? <laughs> and he was pointing out my, you know, Yankee. What is it called? Uh-huh. Uh, um, you know, the, the sort of the East Coast elite snobbishness. Yeah. And I think it was partly because I found some of Jeff, Fox's, Jeff Foxworthy's humor actually quite funny. But uh, <laughs> the point being that if I'm laughing at the expense of somebody else, I'm crossing a line of, you know, dehumanizing or making them less than me mm. to feel good about myself. Mm. And it's yeah. something I just I have to work at growing out of, I guess you could say. Yeah. That's, that's, so. that's, that's cool. Well, thank you for, uh, for doing yeah. that for us. Um, where can people go to get a copy of the book and to follow your work? 
my name, Paul Borthwick, P-A-U-L-B-O-R-T-H-W-I-C-K.com is my website. You can see blogs there. You can see links to all the books that I've written. Um, but my books are available on uh, Amazon, on uh, Barnes & Noble, you know, any any of the major bookseller sites. Uh, a lot of the books that I've done are on InterVarsity Press, which is uh, ivpress.com. Uh, but yeah, they're they're out there, and if you Google my name, you you may find a British guy who plays football. But anyhow, you, you'll also find you'll also find me. Yeah, um, and uh, some of the books are there. And we will have links to everything down in the description in the show notes, like always, so you guys can click down there. We'll make sure you get to the right Paul Borthwick for sure. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for being on the show with us today and uh, sharing your uh, life, wisdom, and experience with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks. Great to be with you. Hey guys, before you take off, I just really want to encourage you to go and check out this book, Mission 316. You know, so much about a lifestyle of discipleship is learning to follow Jesus in the everyday moments of life. And living our life out amongst others who aren't Christ followers is both an essential and an intimidating aspect of the life we've been called to in Christ. But the more we learn about the gospel, the more we learn that it's not about us, it's more about us being a witness to what God is already doing in the lives of those around us and in the world at large. And so we're able to simply reach out to our neighbor without any pressure of feeling like we have to give a full gospel presentation all the way through an an altar and salvation call. I want to challenge you guys just to begin to go on this journey with us as well. We've had victories in our lives as far as reaching out to people, and we've had failures in our lives, and we've talked about those on the podcast in the past before. But I really want to encourage you guys to go check out Mission 316 and begin incorporating uh, step number five of making disciples as part of your lifestyle of discipleship. How can you create a lifestyle of discipleship? Most Christians think discipleship is a program or a few practices thrown in at the beginning or end of the day. But we want to help you create a lifestyle where walking with Jesus throughout the day is not only possible, but natural. And we have a tool that's going to help you do just that. It's called the Daily Growth Journal. It's a guided journal that's going to help you become secure in your identity with God and authentically walk with Him in your daily life. Growing daily in your walk with Christ is possible if you cultivate a lifestyle of discipleship. And the Daily Growth Journal will help you do just that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. To find out more about Paul's work, check out paulborthwick.com. If you like what you've heard this week, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast player you use. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to stay up to date on everything happening at Daily Growth Discipleship, go to dailygrowthdiscipleship.com and subscribe for free. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Spotify.